0: Today's Tripcast is presented by Ridesharing Works for Austin. Vote on May 7th to keep Austin moving. Visit voteforprop1.com for more information. The Tripcast is supported by The Townsend, offering exceptional cocktails and tasty food options with creative performances in downtown Austin. Visit TheTownsendAustin.com for more details.
1: What was that that you said? Texas
2: talking. Ah. going up beside your head. Texas talking. Tell me, who can you trust when Texas got some oh yeah, Texas got love. Texas
0: talking. Ah. All right. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for this final week of April for a live Tribcast in conjunction with our spring member drive. Uh, thank you so much to the Townsend for hosting this great event. We've got some uh, very special guests here to liven up our traditionally uh, staid conversation. For this segment, um, we're including two bright lights in the occasionally dim world of Texas politics. Uh, we have Deirdre DeLisi, political consultant who served as a longtime advisor to Governor Rick Perry, and Ed Espinoza, who's the executive director of the Democratic group Progress Texas. Uh, and yes, please, round of applause for our special guest. Uh, I'm your host, Emily Ramshaw, and I'm joined by our usual suspects, CEO editor, uh, CEO Evan Smith. Yay. I almost called you editor-in-chief. <laughs> Executive editor, Ross Ramsey.
1: Howdy. Mm-hmm.
0: And Ted Cruz, editor-in-chief, Patrick Svitek.
1: Hello, thank you. <laughs> Right, suddenly unemployed.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so the six of us are going to start off by taking a stab at deconstructing Ted Cruz's not-so-awesome night uh, last night. Uh, I knew that there was probably news coming on Monday night when I got a, a, a very late-night text message from Patrick saying, I think there's a 20 to 30% chance that Cruz is going to be out tomorrow, should I pre-write a story? And my normal reaction to that is, yes, sure, <laughs> might as well. Uh, he turned out to be 20 to 30% right. Uh, so... <laughs> (laughs) Patrick, tell us about how things played out for you, how you basically got the news yesterday, and and how things sort of unraveled from there.
3: Sure. Well, I think a lot of people viewed Indiana as a make-or-break state for Cruz mathematically. If he wanted to have any chance of denying Donald Trump the 1237 delegates, he needs to, to clinch the nomination before the Republican National Convention. So we knew that heading into the state. Um, Cruz was coming off of you know this losing this huge losing streak in the Northeast. You know, obviously losing uh, New York, but then these five other northeastern contests coming in third and five out of six of the, or, you know, in most of them basically, and so he really had a momentum problem coming into Indiana to begin with. Um, His campaign went all out in Indiana. Um, I think if you look at the level of organization they had there, the level of, uh, you know, paid media they had there, and just the level of travel they had there, the only thing you can compare it to is the effort they put into, at least proportionally, the effort that they put into Iowa. Um, And that was another state where they just, you know, focused like a laser on winning there. And so huge stakes and, um, you know, crews spent, you know, basically camped out there for a week. And as we saw last night, it, it didn't really pay off. Um, I I believe the last time I checked the the returns, I mean, he lost by 16 points to Trump. Um, And so, you know, the scene in Indianapolis, it was the election night party was held at uh, Union Station downtown, this, you know, kind of beautiful historic building. And, um, you know, TVs went off pretty early. They weren't showing the news to his supporters. Um, It became a uh, pretty—it became pretty clear early on it wasn't going to be a good night for him. Um, And, you know, he came out, I think, maybe— an hour, an hour and a half after it was clear that he had lost by a lot. Um, And the first thing you notice is his parents are on the stage which you don't see a lot. Usually, obviously, special moment when the parents never come out. a
0: good sign if your parents are on the
2: stage. <laughs> Both Both parents, everybody, yeah, comes yeah. with the bereaved, yeah. right? The rim turns into yeah. a tomb, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, his dad is is a very visible surrogate, campaigns for him a lot. But to see his mom on the stage too was certainly, a, you know, that was probably a signal that it was not going to be a, a positive announcement. And so, um, you know, you have uh, this this you know, make or break state. You know, became very as soon as polls closed, pr- Trump was projected to win. And so, mood in the room was was pretty grim. Um, they knew that this was not going to be, you know. Pretty optimistic speech, and as he obviously got into his remarks, um, you know, he announced that he was with uh, with suspending from suspending his campaign, and there were people in the room who were yelling like, "No, don't do it!" And um, (laughs) Uh, other than the press, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But other (laughs) than you're yelling, I was cheering. Keep going, stop, right?
0: But I mean, you know, as recently as yesterday morning, Cruz was saying that he still thought there was a path to nomination. I mean, Deirdre, what do you think changed for him between the morning and the evening? Uh, well,
4: I mean, math, the number, <laughs> I mean, the delegate count. Um, I think had he kept it closer in Indiana, he would have had a more plausible um, path to continue on and continue to the fight and, and um, try to see if the western states and California could have made a difference. But, you know, politics is a momentum game, and he had great momentum coming out of Wisconsin. And then he ran into that brick wall in the Northeast. And New York, and the the amount that he lost in New York by led to tremendous losses in those four other northeastern states. You know, it's just hard. It's hard to make that up after you you run into a headwind like that. And you can talk about making the comparison between what he did in Iowa and what he did in Indiana. But in Iowa, he had months and months and months to um, secure that victory. A week in Indiana after the two weeks he had had prior to that, it just, you know, a 16-point loss— was devastating. He didn't, you know. Trump got way more delegates than he needed in order to be on the path to get the delegates he needed to secure it on the first ballot. And so, at the end of the day, I thought he made a very mature decision to get out now in a very classy way, rather than to keep it going. I've, and I think, and I think people clearly believe with an eye towards 2020.
1: I think Deirdre makes a great point. You know, they say in the music business that you take 20 years making your first record, and 18 months making your second. And Iowa was like his first record. He didn't have a lot of time to make his second record in Indiana. As much effort and time as he put into it, it was not going to be enough to turn that momentum around. And everything he did in Indiana turned out not to work. Picking Carly Fiorina, who is not even popular with his own supporters, turned out not to work. <laughs> Making the deal with John Kasich, which came unravel within about five minutes, turned out not to work. Right. They had to apologize at least twice for things that his wife, who is not guilty of having done anything wrong, Said you know Heidi Cruz said well my husband was an immigrant and then the campaign had to come back and say well actually he wasn't an immigrant. It just it seemed like it, it seemed like every place that he turned that they turned in Indiana things went went terribly wrong. What was the
2: purpose of that um, fit he had yesterday afternoon, where he you know he stopped and took sure. Donald Trump's face off at the end? I was trying to imagine which scenario that was in front of him made sense of that. I mean, if he stays in the race, does this make sense? If he gets out of the race, does this make sense? Can somebody explain this?
0: Desperation. You're referring to what
3: he said in, in Evansville? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this well, is the pathological yeah. liar. venereal disease? And- sure.
2: Yeah, oh. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> Always you go there. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Okay. Based on what I've heard in and and the reporting that's been out there today, he had already made up his mind early yesterday morning, 3 AM, according to some people, um, that he was going to get out of the race if he lost Indiana. And so heading into that, that gaggle in Evansville, I imagine he probably knew the writing was more on the wall than ever, whatever phrase you want to use. But um, and so I think it was more cathartic for him than anything else. Yeah. And it was it was highly ironic that the way he introduced it was he, he looked right at the the cameras. There weren't a lot of reporters there, um, but he looked at the, the few reporters that were there and said, "I'm going to tell you about Don- what I really think about Donald Trump, you know, for the first time." <laughs>
2: Hillary, <laughs> like, Hillary was, Clinton already like has a, an ad out yeah, with all of that stuff yeah, in it. He cut an exactly. ad for Hillary Clinton. I, I'm just trying to figure yeah. this out.
5: But so. he's not the only one to cut an ad. Just go down the line of every. Particular potential Republican vice presidential running mate that would go with Trump. And I was looking at the list today, you got the guy, the African-American senator from South Carolina, might make a compelling case, already came out against Trump for not deploring the KKK comments earlier on in the campaign. You have Tom Ridge, who is a governor from Pennsylvania, former secretary of uh, Homeland Security, has already said he would never support Trump there are so many Republicans who have come out and said, we don't like this guy, and we're not going to be with him, but he's now the voice, the face, and the de facto leader of the Republican Party, and that's not just something that these candidates have to deal with. That's something voters and down-ballot candidates have to look at all across the country. You're,
1: you're we'll admit it. You're, 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 yeah. you're psyched. Come on. You love this. <laughs> Why is this man smiling? <laughs> this is this is like Christmas morning for you, isn't it? It's, right.
5: a, it's a little bit like Christmas, uh, uh, my birthday, and uh, Festivus all, all rolled up. All rolled up into one. <laughs> yeah.
0: We reported just before we came over here, that both Bushes, forty-one and forty-three, have now said they can't get behind Trump or they're not going to play in this. I mean, if you are, um, if you are Cruz, how do you go back to the Senate, a place where you are perceived as Lucifer in the flesh and many other <laughs> delightful terms?
4: I, I'm not, sh- I'm not convinced a, a Cruz to his benefit. He's got a high enough profile uh, to, if he wants to continue on the path to running in 2020. Uh, assuming that there is an opportunity for him to run. He doesn't have to be in the Senate. He's got a profile. He's got a, a way to make that happen. Um, you know, but what I say is about all this endorsement stuff, sometimes we are too close to the loudspeaker. We are political insiders who think average Joe blows on the street. Voters live or die by if George Bush is going to endorse Donald Trump. They don't know. They don't care.
5: Right. And, that's, and that actually speaks to what you were saying about, is this Christmas for Democrats? And I don't think it is, because if Democrats make the same mistake that Republicans made, which is to underestimate Donald Trump, then we could suffer the same consequences that those Republicans did.
1: And, in fact, flip it around, George W. Bush not endorsing Trump may actually be good for Trump. Because Trump goes, well, of course he's not endorsing me. He's business as usual. He's everything I'm running against, I mean, right? He, he, here's so he, here's he can make an argument that that's actually a positive
4: for him. Here's the genius of Donald Trump. Okay, I said it. The genius of Donald Trump. <laughs> everybody in this room, not just because they're political nerds, but everybody in this room and probably everybody in Congress can crystallize in one sentence what Donald Trump's messages. is. He's going to make America great again. Ted Cruz never had a message. I bet no one in this room, maybe a handful of people in this room, can say what Ted Cruz's message was. United. His his trust Ted. His campaign was so driven by the process of elections. Yeah, he had the best analytics. He had the best ground game. But apparently voters in Indiana aren't super psyched about your analytics, Okay, So— Are you saying he needed a hat? (laughs) Yeah, he needed a hat. I mean, message matters. What it comes down to, message matters. Trump's got an easy message that people understand, that they respond to. And I am not—I'm not one of these down in the dumbs Republican who thinks the doom and gloom, it's going to be the end of the world, it's going to be a a total blowout. So you're going to vote for Trump? Yeah, I'll vote for Trump. I mean, you know, at this point, I'll go. vote for Trump. I mean, I go. listen, I, I've said this enough. I went through my 12 stages of grief about Trump really early <laughs> on, okay? I was a Perry person. I've always been a Perry person, and that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, as it was, uh, you know, rolling out, it, it, keeps, it was clear to me that Trump was in this thing for the long haul. There was a time where I thought Ted was going to snatch it away from him. Um, but, you know, I, the Northeast sort of killed that option for him. So... Um, you know, I'm in the category of Republicans who think that, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll take Trump over Hillary Clinton.
5: There are some things that really make Trump unique, it's things I've never seen before in 24 years about, about a presidential candidate. So not only can he say things that would sink any other candidate, but he outperforms his polls. So Anna Greenberg, pollster from Washington, had noted early on when she was doing her, uh, her polling that a lot uh, in, the, in the early states, that he always outperformed his pre-election poll by one or two points. And a lot of it was because there's a lot of people who were responding to polls who knew that saying they were supporting Trump was not the right answer. So they just didn't say it. And on election day, go through almost every state that he won, even a couple that he lost, his final vote hall, outperformed his final poll position. Well, then
1: this should worry you, because if there's a silent majority out there, then you and the Democratic Party should be wetting your pants that all these polls saying that Hillary's going to beat Trump like a drum may not be right. Which takes me to the next part of what I was going to say, which is that (laughs) the problem is is
5: that he now has to walk back a lot of statements that he made in the primary. A general election electorate is much
1: different than a a primary electorate, right? Well, he either has to walk them back or he won't walk them back. And as of today, he's still banning Muslims. Right. As of today, he's, he's doubling down and tripling down on everything he said. No sign of him walking back. what we've you- been
2: saying for 10 months that he's got to walk all his stuff back. You can't say that about John McCain. You can't say that about Fifth Avenue. Right. You can't
1: say that about Mexicans. Right.
5: So maybe he doesn't walk it back, but then how does he explain it to swing voters in Colorado? How do you explain that to swing voters in Pennsylvania, which decide elections by a margin of 100,000? When you're not dealing with base voters and you're not dealing with just typical turnout, a high, elect- uh, high turnout election in a presidential year, how do you resolve that with voters who are actually reading the paper and reading newspaper editorials and endorsements and actually follow these things? How do you do that? And we don't—look, Trump's been able to get past a lot of hurdles before, but this will be the biggest one that he's had to address.
0: Deirdre, how do you reconcile that Rick Perry you know, gets dumped basically for saying that people don't have a heart and you know Donald Trump can say he'd still stay with his wife if she was in a train wreck as long as her boobs were still intact. <laughs> I mean how how do you reconcile those when you think about... I think
2: I missed that. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so many good things went by. Howard
4: Stern. Yeah, listen, I, I, I can't is my answer. It, I mean I'm so glad I sat this cycle out because I probably would have thrown myself off the top of the building if I had gotten that personally invested in it, um, I find it frustrating. There were this was a great cycle. You had 16 really, you had a really great field of Republican candidates, serious-minded candidates who had done really well in in in. They had great resumes and. Had a lot to offer and no one cared about them. You know, at the end of the day, it's a completely different cycle. And you can't compare this cycle to last cycle or to any cycle. When people start telling me about, you know, Reagan Bush 80, I mean, it it just, you can't compare to it. It, it, There's a rule book and the rule book is thrown out. So when people ask me what I think is going to happen, you know, when you think about traditional electoral politics and certainly for the primary elections, the rules didn't hold. We'll see if that's the case for the general election. And you know, and Hillary's going to have her own problems in that regard. I mean, we all watched her yesterday and it was physically painful for me to watch her try to explain to the coal miners in West Virginia about how they misunderstood what she said about getting rid of their jobs. You're going to see this on both sides. I mean, you know, what's going to accrue I think to Donald Trump's favor is that the Democrats are putting up the weakest candidate they've put up probably since Michael Dukakis. So, you know, we'll see what happens. What do you think about that, Ed? <laughs>
5: <laughs> Probably is one of the highest name recognition and highest fundraiser uh, raising candidates we've ever seen. So I, I don't know that we she's the weakest. Talking candidate Talking about hammer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, she's definitely the least popular among Republicans, but. Look, this is somebody who's had a relationship with, with America for 30 years. She's got deep relationships in, in in states like California and Texas all across the map. People know who she is. They either like her or they don't like her. And there's a lot of people that are willing to, to make that decision on Election Day. And I think that uh,
1: she has a better record of that than Trump. So... We'll Sandra yeah. a question uh, yes so what about this idea of the ascended demographic groups that elected Obama in 2012 <laughs> to a second term African Americans Latinos women gays and lesbians that's four of a couple of additional groups do you believe that Donald Trump is in a position to get more votes of women or fewer than Mitt Romney more votes of Latinos or fewer than Mitt Romney more black votes more gay and lesbian votes than Mitt Romney
4: um. I think we definitely have a problem among minority voters. I mean, there's just no question about that. Um, and I worry the most among the Hispanic voters um, in those swing states like New Mexico, Colorado. I mean, I don't think Texas is in danger of going purple, um, or, you know. So, um, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, and I think to a large you know, generally speaking, vice presidential choices don't make a hill of beans difference. I mean, there's a lot of interest in them, but they don't swing elections. I think in Trump's case, his pick of a VP is going to be his first, like, big decision as the presumptive nominee and may send a signal about how, you know, what kind of campaign he plans to run and what kind of presidency he envisions for himself. You know, does that make a big difference? I don't know. But this, you know, you know, he could hardly do much worse among Hispanics than Mitt Romney. I mean, it,
5: it helps to define the nominee, too. A good running mate helps define the nominee. So it may not necessarily change the outcome of the election, but it definitely solidifies the perception of the person at the top of the ticket. Yeah.
0: All right, folks, we're going to swap out seats here really quickly and switch gears. Quick. That's
4: awesome. yep. <laughs>
0: Special guests. Thank you.
1: Thanks, you Thank guys. you. Thank you.
0: All right, to talk about our friends up the street at the Capitol, uh, I'd like to bring up State Representative Celia Israel, Democrat of Austin, and Jonathan Sines, the president of Texas Values. Come to join us. We've invited you two here today to talk about bathrooms. <laughs> Where are they located? <laughs> right, right behind me, uh, and in particular, whether Texas is going to be ground zero for the next state fight over uh, transgenders and and bathroom use. Uh, we've already had uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick saying, you know, the handwriting is on the bathroom wall that Texas will be a state that has this conversation.
2: That wasn't in the bathroom I saw. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, um, we saw news out of um, AG um, Ken Paxson's office today that he has. Asked Target, the the you know big box store, to explain exactly what its plans are for keeping uh, women and children safe in bathrooms. Um, start us off here, Ross. Tell us what whether yeah. we know you like to talk Why about Ross? bathrooms.
2: Yeah. I do like to talk about bathrooms. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean that's basically the layout. You know, we've got this uh, issue that started, I guess, in the news, kind of in Houston, and with the hero ordinance, the the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. Um, uh, was a big thing there, uh, interfered with the mayor's race in some interesting ways, went to North Carolina, um, interfered with the governor's race in some interesting ways, and now has gotten into the presidential race. In the meantime, um, some of the most prominent conservative politicians from Houston are now bringing this to the state level. Obviously, you know, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is one. Uh, it's becoming an issue, or it's trying to become an issue, in uh, the race for. The chairmanship of the Texas Republican Party, between Jared Woodfill, who's from Houston, and um, Tom Meckler, who's the, who's the current chair, uh, that convention is next week. What's going to happen here? What's going on here? And, and is this really a significant ordinance that affects people's lives, or is this one of those, is it a dog whistle?
3: It seems people are. You mentioned Houston. It seems people are certainly emboldened by what happened in, in December in in Houston. Again, you know, you can't draw a perfect parallel between that and North Carolina and that and wherever else this debate is playing out across the country. But, you know, based on what I've heard, it seems people in Houston are, are really um, encouraged, emboldened, whatever term you want to use, by what happened there in December because hero not only went down, but it was a, it was a relatively wide margin, I believe. Right. So,
0: Jonathan, where does this fall on the priority list for you?
3: Well. I think there's no question
6: that this is a very important issue in the state of Texas and nationwide. I mean, there are all kinds of stories coming up. There's all kinds of debate. Um, and, but I think it's important to, for people to understand the context, where this is coming from. Where it's coming from is local government officials are wanting to pass laws where they use these laws to then go into the public sphere to private business owners to apply to issues of public accommodation, where they change and create new protected classifications for gender identity and sexual orientation. When you start talking about public accommodations, that's where the bathroom issue comes in. When you start having language that's subjective based on how a person identifies, that's when you have this issue to where people get to decide or want to decide which bathroom they go in based on how they just identify themselves without any real objective terms that people can count on. When you start having a law, when you start having government officials saying that they're going to fine people based on these laws, like they did in the city of Houston, where they're not allowed to have their private business and decide, hey, if if a man goes into a woman's bathroom, we have a right to stop them in order to protect women and children. This issue was enormous in the city of Houston. Um, and you're right, it was a landslide victory, it was 61-39, as one of, I think one of your staff members said, or someone did from the media, that it was a larger margin than Abbott beat Wendy Davis by. And so this was not expected, there was a lot of money spent, and, um, and it did send the message that the voters are concerned about this issue, just today in frisco texas there's a report out about a man that went into the girls changing room in target of all places Um, there's been stories that have been coming up all over the country in seattle where there's a policy like this in place where the man went into um, the changing room of a swimming pool and the the local law enforcement in seattle said we're not sure how to enforce this issue we're not sure how and the guy said the reason he went in there because he had a right to be even though it was a woman's changing room He said, well, this law protects me. I have a right to be in here if I want to be in here. And the local law enforcement didn't know what to do with it. So these are legitimate problems that are coming up, and there's a legitimate concern of safety in these bathrooms. And so whether or not there will be a law at the state level, um, you can understand why there's a concern. And if you're going to have laws passed in Houston and Dallas and other cities at some point, as in now, State leaders are gonna say, you know what? Maybe we do need to do something about this so we make it clear that women and children are protected.
0: Representative, I see you taking a lot of deep breaths
7: over there. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Good thing I had an adult beverage before I stepped up here. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I think there, I don't, I, when I hear that this is a big problem, I, I, um, I beg to differ. I'm on the transportation committee. We have a big transportation problem in this state. Um, The number one issue in my district is the fact that we keep dragging our uh, public school system through the courts year after year after year, generation after generation, and refuse to acknowledge it. Um, We have um, children in our care in the state of Texas who are dying and um, being raped and being um, harmed, and they're in our care, and that's becoming a crisis situation. Um, we have, um, a lot of big issues to tackle, and it looks as though we're gonna have to wait until January to do it. In the the meantime, this is, these are, in my view, from my perspective, where I'm sitting, my transgender brothers and sisters are getting beat up in Dallas, Texas. We've had over 15, uh, hate crimes just this year in Dallas, Texas. There are consequences for this kind of sudden priority. And um, that hurts me. And there's young kids that are um, trans, that are recognizing and talking to their families and having honest conversations and who are, it's hard enough to be a kid, much less be a kid who's either uh, gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender. So my concern is, is that this division and hatred creates harm for families that is not needed.
0: I, mean, I want to talk about the politics behind this. Doesn't Ken Paxton have enough on his plate? That, Thank you. I mean, yeah. Why is that a priority for Ken Paxton this week? Why Why the politics of...
7: when I When I think about the politics of all of this, the Supreme Court ruled in June that it's okay for my partner and I of 21 years to get legally married and take care of ourselves. So... It's almost like, okay, we've taken care of the the, the L, the G, and the B. Is it now time to attack the T? What, what is, are we fundraising off of this? What, what is the, what is the, the fear? There's no, there's no reason whatsoever for us to be um, ramping things up the in way fa- we are. In fact, well, the,
1: uh, representative of the Department of Justice today uh, said that the North Carolina law may in fact be out of compliance with the Constitution. That, that's been raised. Let me go to Emily, let me offer. Please. Let me um, uh, give voice to a cynical view of why Ken Paxton is paying attention to this when he has so much else on his plate. It's because he has so much else on his plate. <laughs> the cynical view is that the Attorney General. The cynical view is that the t- Attorney General is gravitating toward this issue to distract attention from the things on his what plate. Is, what do
2: you want to talk about, Whoa. Mr. Paxton?
1: But 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 in but in fact, let's acknowledge that he has been consistent all along. He was consistent while in office in the legislature, and he's consistent as Attorney General in carrying a b- portfolio of religious liberty issues, of which you can say this is reasonably. One, you can disagree, but Paxton would say this focus is consistent with his focus on other issues under the umbrella of religious liberty. And so, yes, it may be convenient for him politically to distract from his other troubles, but he would probably argue back, I'm doing this because it's consistent with what I've done all along.
6: Well, let's not act like the uh, attorney general of Texas is the only state elected official that's engaged in this discussion. And that's why the context is important. It's folks that want laws like the city of Houston that allow men to go into women's bathrooms based on the way the, the law is written. They're trying to pass these laws all across the country, there's no question. And many of them have been voted down, and many of them have been repealed after the people did not listen to the—the uh, the elected officials, excuse me, didn't listen to the people that were in opposition. You mentioned that, Evan. Today, the Department of Justice has sent a letter threatening North Carolina. Doesn't Obama have better things to do? Doesn't Target have better things to do? Doesn't the governor of New York have better things things to do. And my point is that it appears that wherever you look across the country, a lot of people in elected office or in corporate power, they see this issue as extremely important, so they're engaging. So it shouldn't be any different that the state of Texas, as Attorney General, where we've dealt with this issue, where it seemed to be resolved by the people, is going to speak up when he sees a business in our state, like Target, that he thinks is putting the safety and privacy of women and children at risk. I think it's leadership.
2: Let me ask the dog whistle question from both sides. I mean, depending, you know, regardless of whether you're a D or an R, where does this rank on the list of problems that you ought to be solving as a government? Where's it, where it rank? Well, of well, Israel
1: put it down below transportation, but it, education. Well, for you itself. two, where does it rank? for the two of us.
6: So here's my point. Well, I can tell you, if you're looking (laughs) at Patrick, you're Republican.
2: (laughs) I mean, he he does
0: need something to cover now. So, yeah.
6: Um, You know, I, I certainly think that it's become very important because of how hard the folks have pushed to try to pass these laws, like the city of Houston. Okay. So city of Houston votes it down. Then North Carolina, what North Carolina did was in response to what the city of Charlotte did, just like Fayetteville, Arkansas. The people voted that ordinance down after it was passed, just like in Springfield, Missouri. So the problem is, is these local legislators are not getting the message that the people disagree with them on this issue, and that they are a legitimate uh, threat to health and to safety and privacy in the bathrooms. And so, if the local um, entities or local elected officials are not getting the message, you're going to see the state get involved in. So, North Carolina, the governor got involved. And so it just depends on how hard the left, if you will, the folks that are trying to push these uh, ordinances for uh, gender identity and sexual orientation, the more that they keep pushing the issue, the more you should expect people on the other side to say, we're, we're not going to allow it to happen or we're going to go against it.
3: What's, what's fascinating about the, the political context to me is, and I'm, I'm certainly no political historian, but this is really showing how re- conservative Republicans nowadays are kind of pushing back against the traditional check of big business within their party in some ways you're seeing a deepening of that schism between you know social conservatives and the kind of more establishment country club business Republicans and I'm sure you guys can, if you (laughs) want to dispute that. But I mean, I feel like that schism is being is being widened by some of these debates. You know, in in the past, you you would have that check within the party, and you know, you would see these laws get straightened out in one way or another. But you look at some national political figures, and we can use Cruz as an easy example. But he is, you know, unrepentant, basically, about uh, ticking off big business in these debates and saying, so be it. You know, essentially, if if they want to leave the state, it's worth standing up for our, our our values.
0: One person who doesn't seem to think this is a very high priority is the presumptive um, Republican nominee for president. Um, Is that concerning to you, Jonathan, at all?
6: You know, I haven't read a whole lot about what Donald Trump—I've seen some things that have been reported, particularly when Ted Cruz— expressed his concern about policies like Target and Charlotte and other places that allow men and women's bathrooms. He expressed concern about that. Um, He has two daughters. And so, um, but I don't, and all I remember seeing was Donald Trump took some different position from his. I don't know specifically what it was, but I do think that's about to change because the folks that want the North Carolina law to go down, President Obama, all these other folks, and um, Bruce Springsteen, celebrities that took to Twitter and they made a big deal. About it, they flooded social media, so they seem to think it's very important. And so, I think going forward, you're going to see a lot more attention. And I think you're going to have to you're going to see Donald Trump talk a little bit more about it, or you think the media is going to ask him a little bit more about it as this issue um, starts to continue to get more coverage, and he's on the stage by himself, so to speak.
0: Representative, are you preparing to play defense? How big do you think this is going to become in 2017? Well, if, if you.
7: I'm always prepared to, pl- to play defense. Um, if you watched my trajectory last session, I was much more active on things like online voter registration, um, uh, buses on shoulders, telecommuting, trying to, trying to work across the aisle. Um, I can do math. There was 52 Democrats, and I needed to show some, some deliverables to my district. So I'm always focused on, on moving the rock forward. Um, these kinds of issues are one big stink bomb on the floor of the House of Representatives, and it means uh, hurt feelings and inaction and nothing gets done. And um, I, I I am concerned for Texas every time that we go down this trail, this rabbit hole. And I'm hopeful that Governor Abbott and others are watching what the mainstream business community is saying in reaction to what's happening in North Carolina and what other Republican leaders in the South are saying to say, we're vetoing this or we're not going to bring this up on our agenda. So there are southern states that are saying, not a priority, let's move along.
1: You you can whip the votes. We have the most conservative Senate in the history of this state. You know that the number of votes necessary to get this bill through this Senate exists. The question is, can you whip the votes in the House? Knowing what you know about the House, you may have 52 next time, you may have 53, you may have 51. It's going to be effectively the same as it was last time. Mm -hmm. Do you think the votes are there in the House that you serve in to get this bill through?
7: well we we killed um the um cecil bell bill I, I put another word in front of it when i'm not in public <laughs> um but um but it, it is difficult and but i think um it's, it's time well spent to, to play defense. Sometimes there's beauty in, in death in killing a, a really bad bill in a legislature. as a bad bill for policy reasons. His bill, for example, would have said the Supreme Court, even if the Supreme Court rules in favor of gay marriage, our county clerks didn't have to adhere to the Supreme Court. So um, it's, it's harmful, it's hurtful, it's divisive. And, and I want to get things done on transportation, on online voter registration, and on, and on what's the most important, which is our
0: children. We're going to
6: take about. uh, I would just say, though, there were dozens of bills filed to advance a similar agenda on gender identity, sexual orientation, and all these things um, with groups like Equality Texas and others. You even filed a bill that would have put the government in a position of punishing people for making individual decisions with a mental health provider um, for an, for a young person who wants to have um, the freedom to be able to talk to a counselor that's struggling with these issues. And so let's not act like you haven't dived into this issue yourself, and so have groups that are pushing. So The more they continue to push bills like this, not only at the local level and state level, I don't think it should be any surprise that conservatives also want to be ready to defend against those type of efforts to advance. As well.
7: It, there's a long road between now and January, and my hope is that state-sanctioned state prejudice will be um, not given the light of day by the time things come around to the Texas legislature.
0: All right. Well, we're going to give the light of day to some of your questions mm-hmm. out there in the audience. Um, and you can ask questions of, of any of this group, and we may invite our um, former guests back up here if there are any that relate to them. So um, throw a hand up in the air if you've got a topic you'd like to see addressed. Yes, ma'am. Well, I just want to make the comment
7: that, as a woman, most of us have had to use men restrooms <laughs> I would like to say that. Now personally if I have a,
0: a, a child, a girl, I can take her into the girls' restroom with me.
7: I had two sons, so I
0: had to send them into the men the boys' restrooms by themselves with no protection, but I never hear you all talking about the protection of boys. It's always women and children. Uh, you know, uh, well it's interesting. So yeah, it's interesting. Re- just repeat the question quickly yeah. because we didn't have it on the mic. So the question is what you know, what about you know young boys going into the men's room, what kind of protections are we providing for them? Right.
6: Yeah, no, no I, and I, and it sounds like you share the concern that there could be things happening in a bathroom where we want privacy protected. And so in North Carolina, a lot was isn't talked about was that that law allowed for public entities to make accommodations for different situations and exceptions to the rule that a lot of folks in the transgender community and others rejected, where they said, look, there's a single-use bathroom, people can use those, and they tried to do everything they could to create an environment where they could deal with different scenarios. And those were rejected. And so, you know, you have to wonder about whether the concern is about health and about safety or is it about advancing a political agenda?
7: If we're concerned about safety, we don't seem to be concerned about the fact that nearly 20 men have had their head bashed in in the North Texas area because, of, because they look different. They acted different. Um, we, should, we should be concerned about the least among us. Um, they will know we are Christians by our love. Everything that we've been talking about today has nothing whatsoever to do with what, um, what I think uh, we should be talking about. And so I'm trying to bring that human element to this. That there are, there's, if, if there's a predator in a bathroom, whether it's a girls' or a men's bathroom, that predator is is going to get caught and be handled by the criminal justice system.
6: Well, and that's the problem that they had in Seattle. Because of the way the language is written in these laws, law enforcement's not sure what to do. It creates this environment where people are afraid to say something and to try to stop folks that may not be able uh, belong in the bathroom, and nothing happens until after the fact. And so I just think we need to do something before more people get hurt. All
0: right. Let, uh, any other questions? Yes, ma'am. In the white shirt? Oh, yes. Please speak into the mic. Todd's going to bring it to you. So my question is, how did we ever get to the point where we had male and female restrooms, and why don't we have unisex restrooms everywhere in the country? I know all we all we I need, need... unisex bathroom in my house. That's a good point. <laughs>
6: Well, some some businesses may want to make that decision, but if other businesses don't, we don't think the government should be punishing them and fining them like they wanted to do in the city of Houston if they make that
5: decision, so.
0: Any non-bathroom questions out there? (laughs) Yes, sir. Patrick. Yes.
5: Great coverage on Mr. Cruz. Thank you. First question. Did Heidi recover from the two sucker punches she got last <laughs> night on stage? Those were
3: pretty rough. I was floored when I saw that. It was an accident. I actually didn't see that. I saw the video afterward, and I was... Oh, uh, I saw the video. Floored. <laughs> this is sort of related to that, and I heard it
5: today on, on the radio. Uh, do you think... Trump's nominate, presumptive nomination will have an effect now on Mitch McConnell and the Supreme Court nomination out of fear of who he might appoint? Well, in fact, Eric
1: Erickson sure. of Red State, yeah. the conservative blogger, called today—or the Red State blog, let me just say, I don't know if it was Eric Erickson specific. It was on Red State. It was a prominent conservative. Called book. for the Republicans to confirm Merrick Garland. Because they, th- and the, the theory was, look, this may be the best, you know, speaking
3: of the art of the deal, this, this the may be the best deal best deal,
1: yeah. best deal we're going to get, actually.
3: Yeah, right. I mean, this was, this was part, you know, central to Cruz's argument to Trump for months, was that he was going to appoint you know, a, a, a hardcore liberal to replace uh, right. Justice Scalia. And so, I mean, and that obviously didn't, you know, entirely resonate. Um, you know, if you looked at even these, these polls where they asked, you know, how much do you care that the next president is going to appoint, you know, a, a reliable conservative to the court, that was certainly up there, but it wasn't the, the top priority for the voters in the polls that, that I saw, at least.
2: Now there's this conversation about Trump should appoint Ted Cruz to the— Spot, which
3: in fact, Dan, would, pa- Dan Patrick for, is, is for, now an advocate. For sport for,
2: would be, you know,
3: Dan Patrick suggested
2: it. For sport, it would be great because it's the guy he called a pathological liar yesterday appointing him and uh, confirmation coming from his 99 close friends in the United States Senate. Great.
0: Any others out there? <laughs> oh, yes, up the front here. here it seems to be Hold here. on, one second. There you go.
4: It seems to me that between uh, Trump and Cruz, there's a lot of projection. They're calling each other the same things, and they both fit the bill.
3: Yeah, they've said that about each other, that they're both projecting. I mean, we've talked about that kind of—some people call it a meltdown. I think we used— He said it was cathartic, but that you know what he said (laughs) yesterday um, in Evansville, Indiana. Part of that whole argument that yeah, exactly. (laughs) Did he feel better after? Did you get any (laughs) report? You know, Cruz said this guy is a pathological liar. You know, he's a a case straight out of a psychology textbook. All he does is project. When you call him a liar, he calls you a liar back. Um, (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't know how productive that discourse has been. Maybe it'll it'll calm down now that there's one Republican candidate left.
0: Yes, ma'am. Part two. (laughs) <laughs> Part two. So what is preventing online voter registration in this state since it has been
7: passed in so many states? There was um, there's nothing preventing it except a favorable chair of the Elections Committee. Um, we had uh, a number of um, Republicans uh, who supported it, and um, Larson, Cook, and others who thought this is a great um, government, a, a great bill for at the county level, just good county government. I'm going to work hard on it again, thank you.
2: Does registration really make any difference? I mean, you know, the problem in Texas isn't so much registration as, as turnout. Registered voters don't turn out.
7: I think it makes a difference to a state that's young and growing. We've got people who, who are moving here from either out of state or they relocated from, from Houston to take a job in my district at Samsung. And um, you know, election is approaching, and someone told him, "Well, you got to go to this. You got to go to this website. You can go to the website, but you got to print it out, and you got to find this thing called an envelope, and you got to get this thing called a stamp, and then you and then you can get registered to vote." So, um, because of our dyna- uh, the demographics, um, I think it, it is important because of our growth. Yes, we have so many new people here who need who, who need to be um, engaged and approached and and take part in their Texas.
2: I was, the, what happens to the Republican
6: Party at this point? Uh, you've got essentially what it looks like to be their grand coalition is splitting apart. Uh, Trump has kind of take, gone in there with a, a sledgehammer and destroyed it. So where do, we, where do we wind up? Do we have a 1968 election, or you know what, what's the result for the Republican Party at this point?
1: De- Deirdre? Deirdre. Deirdre? You want to get in on this? And
0: <laughs> what's the future of the Republican Party, Deirdre? Um.
4: No one knows, okay? Thank you very much. We've thrown out the rule book, okay? The rule book's gone. But, again, these dire predictions right now about what this is going to do to the Republican Party were too close to yesterday. People just need to calm down for a little while. You know, we're going to have our conventions. Um, This thing is going to settle out. And these dire predictions about this is the end of the Republican Party as we know it, I think are overblown at this point. We are, what, seven months away from Election Day? That's a lifetime. Seven months ago, no one thought Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. So until I see how this thing plays out, I'm not willing to say that this is going to be either the blowout that's being predicted. And I think any Democrats who are doing a a dance of joy right now may be regretting that come November. Um, And certainly I don't think this is going to be this wave election that's going to, uh, you know, uh, you know, Lead to dire circumstances.
1: You're you're in the consulting business, and your husband certainly is in the consulting business, working with candidates and campaigns. Do you advise somebody running for office in Texas, those few Republicans who have plausible general election opponents, to run away from the nominee in this case, or to run toward? So you let's say let me let me be specific. You're you're working for Will Hurd, who is running for re-election in the only competitive congressional district in the entire state, and you know that he has a tough fight against uh, Pete Gallego. Do you tell Will Hurd, support this guy, jump in the sidecar with Trump, or do you tell him, run a race that's entirely about your district, local, and don't even acknowledge it as a presidential
4: election? I I look at polling data, and I say, run the race that makes makes the sense for you to win. so, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not privy to that. But I think any candidate needs to run the race that they need to run in order to win. What And whether or not that is aligning yourself with the presidential candidate or not. I mean, do you think, peak, I mean, how many Texas, I mean, you know, you, there's, there are plenty of people throughout this country who are having that same conversation on the other side. I mean, sure, what's but. Joe Manchin going to do in West Virginia? So. This has implications everywhere. Any candidate in any level of government running for re election needs to run their race. And if it includes uh, a tie into the federal race, then God bless them. All right, folks. That's all the time we have. Thank you very much for coming. And oops, thank thanks you. to our
0: special guests. Yep. And I also just wanted to say thank you to the Townsend for hosting this. This is really lovely, a wonderful space for us to have this event. So thanks again.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe the whole podcast of my dramatic readings. Yeah, I'm kind of like the Sir Patrick Stewart of this podcast. <laughs>